Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. It's fantastic today to be joined by Joseph Liao Chinyong, who is the Tan Ka Ki Chair in Comparative and International Politics at Singapore's Nanyang Technological University, where he's also Dean of the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. Joseph is well known for his work on the politics and international relations of Southeast Asia and is the author of several books, the most recent of which are Ambivalent Engagement, the United States and Regional Security in Southeast Asia after the Cold War, which was out from Brookings in 2017, and Religion and Nationalism in Southeast Asia from Cambridge University Press in 2016. Joseph, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you on our show. We've had a lot of discussions lately and had some previous podcasts where we've been talking to people about these old chestnut topics that come up again and again in slightly new forms. Great power rivalries in Southeast Asia and beyond. A number of new books have recently come out on these topics. And you, of course, had the experience of being at Brookings, so you know what it's like if you're in an American Washington uh, Beltway think tank. I've had this experience many times where I give a talk about, say, Thailand's politics, and people say, but isn't this all really just a struggle between China and the US? You know, (laughs) the local politics of countries like Thailand actually should be read through this sort of great power lens. You must have come across this again and again. How did you feel when you were asked those kinds of questions about politics in Southeast Asia? Frankly, Duncan, I think I probably felt like you did, which is annoyed and irritated. I suppose, in a sense, it's a function of how great powers operate and think that Mm -hmm. the world, quite literally, they think, uh, revolves around them. And everything has to do, especially in the context of great power rivalry, right? Everything's got to do with the other party, the, mm-hmm. the adversary or the competitor being up to something, trying to undermine the other party's interests, this, that, and the other. And as a result, they often miss the target as far as trying to understand what is happening in the region, in the specific countries uh, is concerned. And then when things don't go their way, they kind of turn around and say, hey, you know, what happened here? When in fact, it was ripe for miscalculation. I think in the case of the US, which you yourself, uh, you're familiar with as well, and decision maker thinking, it's always a case where, you know, Southeast Asia having, it's very difficult to determine the inherent value of Southeast Asia for the United States. What I've come across is that it's easier to make the case to people, say, from the the State Department or the Defense Department or even national security. But, But even then, you sometimes find yourself having to make the case in relation to China, right? Or to Japan or to Russia, rather than have Southeast Asia sort of valued, so to speak, on its own merit. But when it comes to the other side of the political house, the, when it comes to Congress, for example, which mm-hmm. I've had some interactions with as well, yes. now that one is you know, near impossible to mm-hmm. get them to, you know, apart from the handful of caucuses that focus on some aspect or the other 
on Southeast Asia, like back in early 2000s and 2010s, it's Caucasus focusing on Myanmar, focusing on the MIA, the Missing in Action in Cambodia and Vietnam. There was a pretty active but a small uh, Singapore caucus and ASEAN caucus, mm-hmm. but uh, that was pretty much it. Yeah, it's a long-winded way of uh, agreeing with you that it is very difficult, even even in the case of China, to really sort of get them to think about Southeast Asia on the region's own merits. When you say in the case of China, you mean that uh, policymakers in China have the same kind of problem? Yes, yes. I think, well, in, in China, perhaps it's less pronounced. I think in China, what, what the challenge there is that, uh, number one, there is far less developed sort of Southeast Asian studies tradition. I mean, whatever we say about the United States or, or, or Europe, for that matter, and the erosion of uh, interests and expertise in Southeast Asian studies, there was a time where there was a fairly healthy vision of that. But in the case of China, I think they're still trying to develop that expertise. It's not very strong. That's the mm-hmm. first sort of challenge. The second challenge is the way China looks at Southeast Asia. I think if you were just focusing on old school geopolitics, you would say that uh, Southeast Asia is kind of like China's backyard. And it is. But over and above that, I think the Chinese see Southeast Asia as a natural arena of their influence, in large part because of the strong cultural and historical networks and tradition, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and interactions that they have had in the region. Now, that's great when we want to talk about how, you know, cultures can meet and intermingle and things like that. But when people talk about China and it's what they call the civilizational outlook, these grandiose notions like ecological civilization and so on. Exactly. So if they talk like that, and indeed, if they think in that manner, through such lenses, view the world, then it follows that when they look at Southeast Asia, they will see that as a natural place where they have long had a very strong cultural signature. And that should logically sort of translate to various other kinds of linkages, right, including economic, including political. And that's something that uh, Southeast Asia is up against today when it comes to dealing with the Chinese. So two kind of different versions of great power outlooks towards Southeast Asia, neither of which is particularly encouraging. Indeed. In China's case, there's also, is it an added asset or complication? The fact that most countries in Southeast Asia, of course, Singapore looms very large here, have significant populations of people of Chinese ethnicity and descent. And how does that factor into this understanding or or misunderstanding between China and Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, it, it does create a whole different level of complexity. I mean, Singapore more so than the rest, because we are of the only Chinese, ethnic Chinese majority population, you know, outside of Greater China. And we have, you know, th- this is the funny thing. The whole national identity building story of Singapore was predicated on trying to create a Singapore identity, uh, understandably so. But part of that process was also about keeping alive the sort of cultural identities of ethnic groups. 
which is fine, except that now you're dealing with an external power that thrives on its cultural connections with mm. various diaspora communities across the world, but primarily in East Asia and Southeast Asia. And this has created that complication where you have a segment of the population that is very, if not sentimental, certainly sympathetic towards a Chinese uh, view of things. And, you know, that creates challenges when you want to identify a very clear Singapore perspective, not one that hues to the US, not one that hues to China, but, you know, really an expression of Singapore's own interests, as they say. That has been complicated by this sort of cultural connection. In Southeast Asia, I think it's most evident in Singapore, less so in the case of Malaysia or Philippines or Thailand, right? Mm -hmm. It really is Singapore that is facing this. Right. I mean, how, how much negotiating power or agency do the individual nations of Southeast Asia have when faced with this standoff, as it were, this increasingly tense standoff between the United States and China? Because in terms of yes. size and military power, I mean, Singapore is mm-hmm. obviously an extreme example because it's a very small country, but none of the countries of Southeast Asia is in any way able to stand on its own sort of feet in defense terms vis-a-vis either of these major powers. So what kind of dynamic does the presence of these two looming, uh, I don't know whether we should call China a superpower now, but these two looming very large nations, uh, what kind of effect does that have psychologically on the consciousness of countries that have had you know, a difficult history that in many cases have yes. been involved in wars uh, during the Cold War and so on. What's the psychological impact of two large entities breathing down the necks of small Southeast Asian countries? That, that's a very good question. I think you're absolutely right. If you want to sort of aggregate all the so-called power indices, right? You get into all the bean counting. I mean, it's a it's a non-starter. There's no way right. to China, let alone the the US. I suppose from the from the Southeast Asian narrative, if you look at the long durée, the longer durée, it's not the the position that the region is in is not particularly unique. Southeast Asia has been in this situation before, dealing with external powers from the. Yeah. On the classical age with China and India through colonialism, uh, the Second World War, Cold War, you name it. So in, in that respect, Southeast Asian polities and societies have had to deal with great power interests, external powers, you know, trying to shape the neighborhood and influence dynamics in the neighborhood. But having said that, I think the challenge for Southeast Asia in this modern era is for the 10 or 11, depending on whether you want to count Timor, Timor-Leste in the picture, for them to essentially try to derive a similar outlook towards the United States and China. As someone used to say, for Southeast Asia dealing with the US and China, you either hang together or you hang individually. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that particular statement. So what great power rivalry and competition is doing today is holding a mirror to Southeast Asia or ASEAN, right? If you want to put it that way. Holding a mirror up to ASEAN, letting ASEAN have a look at 
the state of its own uh, regional coherence and unity. And the picture is not particularly great. And uh, I think the Southeast Asian uh, leaders themselves will admit that it certainly could have been much better. But at least one power, I think, in this uh, sort of a bipolar structure, if we can call it that. You know, the Chinese have actually demonstrated before that, given their familiarity with how ASEAN diplomacy operates, you can get your way. You don't have to work on the entire organization to you know, have things lean in a direction that is favorable to you. You just have to work on uh, one or two states. And this, I think, is one of the challenges that ASEAN faces. It's in its effort to price unity above all else. You know, the whole thing about consensus. That resolute and robust commitment to ASEAN unity has created this conundrum where it's so difficult to achieve it but if you don't, it creates all sorts of problems for the region. And yeah, and that's the situation that, that the region is in, unfortunately. Yes, we don't, you know, I think many of us were, even those who don't, who don't follow the twists and turns of ASEAN particularly closely, which I would confess to being in that category, were slightly taken aback. I think it was in 2012 when the um, they failed to reach, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to issue a communique under the Cambodian chairmanship with widespread yeah. speculation that the Cambodians had basically been nobbled by the Chinese, yeah. not to say anything controversial about the South China Seas. It seems that since that moment, now almost a decade ago, ASEAN hasn't managed to get back together the pieces of, of a very convincing unity, the ASEAN way increasingly seems like a, a plural way with some countries, notably Vietnam, going very much in a, an anti-Chinese or critical of Chinese direction. Others adopting yeah. a very much softer stance and others sitting in the middle squirming and trying not to commit themselves to saying anything very much. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that one danger that Southeast Asian governments should probably avoid, that is putting all their eggs in the ASEAN basket. And to be fair to them, I don't think any Southeast Asian government does that. I mean, ASEAN is a, you know, it's good to have, you know, this diplomatic backpatting, uh, it's a chicken soup for the soul kind of Indeed. Thing, uh, which is, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's useful to a point. But when it comes, sometimes when it comes to dealing with some critical issues, the harsh reality is that ASEAN it's not even a case that ASEAN is not up to it. You could even say that ASEAN is not designed to deal with some of these issues. So because of that, Southeast Asian states have been trying to look at other alternatives. So they build their own sort of mini laterals and trilaterals and bilaterals with other powers, including the US and China themselves, in order to sort of strengthen their individual positions vis-a-vis this changing landscape. And it's, I think it's perfectly understandable that they are doing that. And uh, it's probably a wise thing to do because I honestly don't see ASEAN getting the region over some very trying problems. I mean, like the mm. South China Sea, where sort of we should supposedly be on the cusp of the declaration of conduct DOC. Right. The Chinese three years ago when Singapore was the chair, ASEAN chair, had announced that they set a timeline to complete the DOC in three years, and that was mm-hmm. 2018. So we're talking about this year, 2021. Indeed. From what I know, they're still quite a ways off from 
completing a proper draft, let alone getting everyone to agree to it. But at any rate, even if a DOC was completed, I think no one who has even the slightest inkling of that issue would be thinking that the DOC would be this sort of robust, legally binding document that would bring closure on the issue. So this is an example of a, of a regional issue that is not going to be solved by ASEAN. At best, ASEAN can help manage it. Even then, we don't know. Certainly, it's not going to resolve it. So what do you make of the, as it were, the framing and even the nomenclature of US views of well, what I used to call Asia these days? But as yeah. we may have known, we used to talk about a pivot to Asia. Asia seems to have gone, Joseph, and we now have something called the Indo-Pacific, Indo-Pacific. which yep. the Australians have obviously always been trying to tell us that it was the Pacific and not Asia, for reasons that you'll yep. understand. And of course, the Indonesians yep. and the Indians rather like Indo-Pacific because it suggests yep. a world very much centered on them. But yep. as somebody who's spent most of my life working in the field of Asian studies, I'm rather alarmed by the <laughs> disappearance of the cancel. Asia's been cancelled. So how, how does it seem from a Southeast Asian point of view when people, especially in the US and now in, in Europe as well, yep. adopt this language of the Indo-Pacific, which seems to gloss over a lot of nuance <laughs> and complexity? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, we can just see our potential funding for Asia studies go right. up. But you're right to, to note that uh, countries like India and uh, even Indonesia, Indonesia was pretty thrilled when that concept started to gain currency because... I first um, heard about that from when Martin Atalagawa came and spoke exactly. at Columbia and I was chairing his talk and he started talking exactly. about Indo-Pacific and I turned to people yeah. and said, are we really going to talk about Indo-Pacific? And eight <laughs> years on, everybody's yeah. only talking about Indo-Pacific. Exactly, exactly. You remember back then, right, when they came yes. up with this idea, it hardly got traction in Jakarta, right. let alone yeah. get traction elsewhere right. in Southeast Asia or Asia for that. Yes. But now everyone's talking about it. Why is that so? I have a very simple and possibly simplistic view on this. And it's simply that it was a position that it wasn't conceived of by the Americans, by the Trump Mm -hmm. administration, but it was articulated in a very definitive way by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And if you are trying to get the United States to be engaged in the region, and the United States has articulated its terms of its engagement, i.e. Right. free and open Indo-Pacific, what are you going to do? Are you going to reject it or try to find some way to fit that notion into the lexicon that mm. prevails in the region? So you notice that, and this is the funny thing, historically Southeast Asia, or ASEAN for that matter, historically mm-hmm. ASEAN has been very averse to any extra-regional attempt to articulate a conception of the region for mm-hmm. the region, whether it's Japanese, Australian, uh, right. Soviet, you know, yes. it's, it's always a case that, you know, ASEAN's response will be it's non-starter because it didn't come from ASEAN and right. it doesn't have ASEAN centrality at its core. And we can easily uh, enumerate a number of these. Right. When uh, the Indo-Pacific was first articulated by the first Abe administration in Tokyo, it didn't get much attraction either. But when Trump articulated it, within 11 months, ASEAN came up with the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, remember? The AOIT. The fact that ASEAN can come up with that within 11 months, you know, within a calendar year, is quite impressive for an organization. Lightning Uh, speed. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) for ASEAN. So to, to me, it's telling of 
how important ASEAN thought it was to engage this concept, regardless of the reservations that the region mm. might have of it. You know, and truth be told, there were quite a lot of reservations, not right. least of which was how it would be seen as an attempt to contain China, to sort of exclude China from the mm-hmm. region, uh, right. how it was seen to bypass ASEAN. Because, and here's the funny thing about Indo-Pacific, if you look at the map, ASEAN geographically is really at the center of the Indo-Pacific. But sort of intellectually and conceptually, I don't think anyone will say ASEAN is at the center of the Indo-Pacific. So ASEAN, it triggered a fair bit of existential angst for ASEAN, which explains why all the countries that have articulated, you know, call it a view, call it an outlook, Mm -hmm. whatever, position on the Indo-Pacific, a formal position, have taken great pains to write ASEAN into their statement. ASEAN mm-hmm. centrality being important. You know, the proverbial tip of the hat to ASEAN centrality, knowing that it doesn't mean all that much, but it's important to put it in there. So they put it in there to allay the concerns of ASEAN. Yeah, it is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? It's almost some, someone's drawn a big circle around Southeast Asia, but the emphasis yeah. is on the line of the circle itself and not yeah, exactly. in the middle of it. And it seems like a move very much calculated to marginalize China and to yeah. emphasize all kinds of players that sort yeah. of slightly encircle or yeah. no, cut exactly. out Chinese influence. So, but so, interesting. So ASEAN is still pretty ambivalent. We're still pretty ambivalent to the Indo-Pacific, even though we have the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. Indeed. But interestingly, I mean, this is where sort of coming to the final topic for discussion really is, where is the Biden administration and the US in all this? Because you might have thought that the Biden administration would distance itself a bit from this Indo-Pacific concept. And here, is there a, a sort of a parallelism with a topic that's been on a lot of people's minds lately, the debacle of Afghanistan? You know, are we seeing the end of the kind of directly engaged U.S. influence in Asia that we've seen previously? We're moving to something different and is, is in fact, the invocation of the Indo-Pacific in some way a stepping back from the Pax Americana that we'd imagined previously? Well, I think in relation to Afghanistan, my response is a yes and no. And Mm -hmm. uh, I do have a little bit of of a contrarian view on this because I agree that there was a recalibration on the part of the Biden administration. In fact, it's not even a recalibration. It was was continuity from the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. really, as far as the Indo-Pacific, China being at the heart of, at the center of everything that the U.S. wanted to do. And this region being the, the environment arena in mm-hmm. which they were going to do it. So withdrawal from Afghanistan facilitates this effort. But so some people have been talking about how, and the Chinese definitely have been talking about how the American withdrawal from Afghanistan is just yet another example, plain as day for all to see how the Americans cannot commit. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that they can, you, you want to be very careful because they can just pack up and ship out and leave you sort of carrying the can. I think that Afghanistan may not be as good and as accurate an analogy for even Southeast Asia, let alone larger sort of East Asia. I think American interests in Afghanistan were, I mean, apart from dealing with the terrorist threat, which triggered all this, right, after 9-11, 
And even then, it was as much an emotive response on the part of the United mm-hmm. States as it was a calculated the move to, to address this threat of terrorism. But in any case, apart from terrorism, there isn't any fundamental American interest tied to Afghanistan. Now, mm-hmm. in the case of Southeast Asia, while I mentioned earlier, it's always very difficult to get Americans to to sort of see the value and appreciate the value of Southeast Asia on its mm-hmm. own merit. At the same time, I do think that compared to Afghanistan, the United States certainly has more interest, whether it's related to China or not, they certainly have more interest in our region. I wouldn't go so far to say that it would therefore mean that the American commitment is ironclad, but I would say that Afghanistan is really a poor analogy for how the United States might act or position itself if there were other crises in the region. So those are my thoughts on the Afghanistan thing. Right. Do you see the Biden administration having a distinct policy towards Southeast Asia? Is it continuing with the Asia pivot of the Obama era, or are we just in a kind of (laughs) post-Obama, post-Trump kind of zone here? I don't think that there's a clear policy on Southeast Asia. I think that Southeast Asia features as part of a larger region and, and a larger sort of rationale for which the United States is sort of recalibrating its presence mm-hmm. in the region. So right. it's sort of a combination of the Obama pivot and the Trump Indo-Pacific. Because right. in any case, <laughs> you could even make the case that Trump was continuity from Obama. He was more amenable to a, a blunter instrument than Obama. And Biden is basically happy to carry on using that instrument. It's the mm-hmm. same instrument Biden wants to be a bit more measured in how he uses it, but make no mistake, it's the same instrument. And so those are the fundamental strategic objectives that the United States has. And then from that vantage, they fit Southeast Asia in just like they fit South Asia and uh, you know, Central Asia, etc. So I don't think that the United States will have a policy for Southeast Asia, nor they probably don't think that they even need one. Whereas we, of course, in Southeast Asia, we would like for that to happen, that they can think about the region for the region, and they can come up with some point of reference for the region, independent of the US and China, like how we started this discussion. But yes. the reality is, uh, I don't see that happening with this administration. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Every country and every region in the world would like to have this special relationship, special recognition and special understanding from both the US and indeed these days with China. But it's very difficult to achieve those kind of special understandings uh, because big countries have got too many uh, people that they have to deal with. and Smaller countries typically just have one or two. Yes, exactly. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Joseph. Thanks so much for joining us on the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you, Duncan. I enjoyed it. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. I've been talking to Joseph Liao, a Professor of Politics and Dean at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore about the politics of Southeast Asia as framed, sometimes misleadingly, by great power rivalries between China and the United States. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.